Hey everyone, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And before we get started, I'd like to make a quick correction, and I think in fairness uh, to myself, it's a relatively small one, and it doesn't affect the essence of the story. But still, I like to try to be as truthful and accurate as possible. So, in the, uh, the last episode, I was discussing that story about the old man with a cane who had been pushed over by the police, and uh, that's not to be confused with the, uh, the case of Martin Gugino, another elderly man <laughs> pushed over by the police. And I just have to stop to uh, darkly joke how sad it is that we actually have to stop and specify uh, which old man assaulted by the police we're talking about. I'll be talking more about Martin Gugino in a bit, but this correction pertains to the case of James Tobin a 67-year-old Salt Lake City man who was walking with the assistance of a cane when he was uh, shield-bashed by an officer in riot gear. The officer repeatedly bashes this little old man until he eventually knocks him back into a metal fence, causing the man to fall to the ground. And for some reason, the faulty version of the account I had in my head involved Tobin falling back into what I described as a section of metal fencing that fell over with him. I remembered it being some kind of temporary police barricade, but upon watching it again, it just looked like metal fencing lining the perimeter of some building. I can only chalk it up to the faulty nature of human memory, or at least the faulty nature of my memory, uh, specifically. Anyway, before I move on to Martin Gugino, uh, the other elderly man assaulted by uh, the police, I wanted to quickly offer some thoughts on some videos I watched over the weekend. I watched Dave Chappelle's Netflix special entitled 8 Minutes 46 Seconds, a reference to uh, the George Floyd case, and Netflix actually posted it to YouTube for free, which I thought was uh, pretty cool, so you can find it there. I think the name of the channel is Netflix is a Joke, but it's their official uh, comedy channel, so if you're interested, you can find it there. Uh, I actually really liked it. Um, it was a bit surreal because I think this was the first or one of the first public shows or venues since the whole lockdown thing. As Chappelle points out, there have been drive-in movies and even drive-in comedy shows, but this was an actual audience, you know, sitting in seats. Uh, strange to think that something so simple as a venue where people can sit, you know, and watch a show has become uh, noteworthy in this new world. It's Dave Chappelle, so of course there were some really funny parts, but it was also really heavy at times, uh, because he addresses the whole George Floyd situation and all the current civil unrest, uh, you know, that it sparked. And this reminds me of something that's crossed my mind a couple of times. On the one hand, I don't even like thinking of uh, Derek Chauvin or Chauvin, the cop that murdered uh, George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for almost nine minutes. When I think of that video of watching one man kill another, you know, by casually kneeling on their neck, it's so dark, depressing, and vile that it makes me feel like I need to wash my soul or something. Uh, figuratively speaking, of course, uh, agnostic atheist here. 
But just out of intellectual curiosity, I found myself wondering what went through Derek Chauvin or Chauvin's mind when he realized that not only did he kill another human being, but when he realized he, by way of his callous and depraved actions, you know, had set off a global outcry against racial inequality and police violence. And in a sense, he's responsible for throwing his own nation into a state of upheaval and civil unrest uh, during a global pandemic, no less, that we're still, you know, fighting to contain. Uh, I know it's inappropriate, but for some reason, uh, I kept picturing Urkel, you know, did I do that? Uh, but, But anyway, is he evil? Is he stupid? Maybe both? I don't know. But yeah, Chappelle's special was pretty fiery at times. And I have to admit, uh, because he called out certain people, that, you know, I found it very cathartic. So you guys know me. I consider myself as being a a kind of left-leaning independent. I lean heavily left, but I don't affiliate myself with the Democratic Party or anything. Hell, the last two elections, the Democratic Party derailed my candidate of choice, Bernie Sanders. Uh, All that being said, I'm still ideologically speaking diametrically opposed to people on the far right. I can't stand a lot of the right wing talking heads out there. And when Dave Chappelle called out Candace Owens and Laura Ingram by name, I was like, thank you. And like I said, it was pretty cathartic. The language he uses is pretty strong, so just a heads up. Uh, I don't hate a lot of people, but I do have a short list, you know. Uh, And uh, Owens and Ingram are probably up there along with uh, Dinesh D'Souza. I will say in Laura Ingram's defense that she comes across as more sincere or intellectually honest to me than Candace Owens or Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh just comes across as incredibly smarmy and intellectually dishonest, and Candace Owens seems like she might believe what she's saying on some level, but she's also, you know, trying to keep the shtick going that made her popular. The whole pretty conservative black girl who's willing to chuck other people of color under the bus thing. And I also get the feeling that she's a little unhinged or in over her head or something. There's a kind of uh, nervous energy there. But I think the reason why Chappelle took issue with her, uh, Candace Owens, is that she was kind of publicly denouncing George Floyd, talking shit to put it in the vernacular. Uh, She brought up his criminal past and said, I'm paraphrasing, that uh, we or the black community shouldn't be putting him up on a pedestal, etc. And I'm not trying to uh, virtue signal here, but I think there really is this pattern I've observed with these high-profile cases where a cop kills a black man or a black kid, where you inevitably have people bringing up stuff from the deceased person's past, usually a right-wing pundit or some apologist for the police, so they can try to paint the person in a less sympathetic light. It is true that George Floyd did have a troubled past. I think it may have been a, a decade or more ago, but there was even a very disturbing story about him uh, supposedly pulling a gun on a pregnant woman. He may have had other brushes with the law, too, uh, but supposedly he turned his life around and was well-liked by people. And it was interesting to note that I believe the Muslim shop owner, where he supposedly tried to float, you know, a fake $20 bill or whatever it was, actually came out and said he liked Floyd and thought highly of him. I'm paraphrasing. 
And it was uh, actually a young guy who works for him who was filling in that called the cops on uh, George Floyd. I still have no idea whether the money or the bill he tried to pay with was actually counterfeit or not. But all this is moot either way, you know. Uh, even if he had a rap sheet as long as your arm, uh, you know, that shouldn't justify kneeling on his neck for nine minutes, you know. Another thing that's interesting, I remember this being mentioned a day or two after the story first broke. And then it just kind of, you know, wasn't brought up again until recently. Uh, it's the fact that uh, Chauvin, or Chauvin, however you pronounce it, and Floyd worked at the same place as security, I believe. And people are saying that they butted heads in the past, possibly over the way uh, Chauvin supposedly treated patrons. Uh, that's one thing I heard floated recently. I was thinking how it almost sounds like it could be an episode of The Shield. Remember that TV show starring uh, Michael Chiklis uh, about a group of corrupt cops? Um, it almost makes me wonder if uh, Chauvin or Chauvin, whatever it is, saw the uh, take a drink every time I have to guess how to pronounce his name. Um, uh, but... Uh, I was almost, you know, kind of just wondering in my head if maybe, you know, he saw this as an opportunity to take out a personal enemy. I know it's probably in bad taste to uh, speculate, but that did cross my mind. If so, he'd have to be, you know, stupid as hell. Can you imagine killing someone you had a personal grudge against while knowing you're being recorded or that you could be, you know, being recorded? Um, well, I guess either way, that still applies. Uh, end of the day, he did kneel on George Floyd's neck while being recorded, uh, whatever his motivation was. I remember a week or so ago, people were saying that there was a disturbing habit cops supposedly had in some areas of basically trying to subdue suspects that were resisting or that they found troublesome or difficult by putting them in these dangerous chokeholds until they passed out, you know, as if, you know, trying to flip the off switch on the back of a toy robot or something. And I wonder if that's a possibility, too. George Floyd was, um, you know, supposedly nervous and almost seemed like he may have been having a panic attack. And of course, there was speculation that he may have been on something. I think people are now saying that the lab results may be indicating that he uh, may have had fentanyl in his system. Either way, you know, who cares if he was high or not? Uh, being high shouldn't merit a death sentence. And if anything, he seemed kind of, you know, afraid or panicky. He wasn't being violent. But yeah, that is another thing that crossed my mind. Uh, I was wondering if George Floyd may have fallen victim to this disturbing police mentality where if someone's acting up, oh, let's just choke him out and throw him in the back of the car, you know? Whatever uh, Chauvin or Chauvin's reasoning or motivation was, the outcome's still the same. A man's dead and, uh, you know, it's disgusting and, and there needs to be justice. But yeah, so let's see. Yeah, I was talking about the different stuff I watched over the weekend. And uh, yeah, I watched a lot of YouTube, uh, mostly in the background while I was trying to get stuff done or working out, etc. And I don't know if anyone else uh, has been experiencing this, but YouTube's algorithm seems to really want me to view or check out a couple of particular YouTube channels. 
I watch a pretty wide variety of YouTube content, atheist channels, you know, vegan channels, various documentaries, news, politics, even cutesy animal stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, all, all sorts of different stuff. Uh, but for like the last couple of weeks or so, Rolling Stone's Useful Idiots podcast and Brett Weinstein, is it Weinstein or Weinstein? Uh, why I'll go with uh, Weinstein. Brett Weinstein's Dark Horse podcast are always in my up next queue. Uh, I've never intentionally sought either of them out, but YouTube's always trying to jam them down my throat. I'll be watching a video and I have to uh, quickly hit the back button as soon as it ends to keep you know the shit from playing next. Uh, pardon my French, uh, which can be pretty annoying, especially if you're you know if I'm across the room working out or something. Uh, but on the upside, they're not bad podcasts. Uh, I just wish YouTube would let me decide when and if I want to watch them, you know? The Dark Horse podcast is hosted by husband and wife couple Brett and Heather Weinstein. Actually, I think she might go by her, uh, her maiden name, even though they're married. Uh, I think they're both biologists. Uh, Brett Weinstein and his brother Eric were both part of that whole intellectual dark web thing. I don't know who coined that term, but I've always found it incredibly cringy. Uh, but it's interesting uh, listening to Brett and his wife. Uh, sometimes I agree with them, sometimes I don't. And it's funny, there's something about the dynamic... Uh, that kind of reminds me of an old SNL skit where they where they kind of parody uh, NPR or something like the Alec Baldwin's uh, was it sweaty ball skit. Uh, they're both very uh, soft-spoken and there's like wood paneling behind them or whatever. I'm still trying to figure out uh, their exact politics. They seem to be anti-Trump, but also very wary or anti-political correctness. I think that's probably in part due to their experience with uh, Evergreen College. Brett and Heather both taught or worked there, I believe, and I think it was back in 2017. Uh, the campus was disrupted by protests, and there was an altercation, I think, uh, between Brett and some of the protesters. I think it was to the point where he feared for his own safety and felt the campus police and the higher-ups at the college had failed to do their job. Uh, he and his wife ended up uh, suing the school, I believe. So even though, in a sense, I think they're probably pretty left-leaning, they do go pretty hard with the anti-political correctness stuff sometimes. And on the most recent episode I was watching, Heather recites um, what I think was some kind of prepared, scripted, editorial kind of thing, where she offers her thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement or the politics behind all the civil unrest, etc., and there was one part where she delivers uh, a line about genuflecting to the new gods or something like that. And uh, I could tell she's like very proud of that line. And I think she was waxing poetic about political correctness and the whole taking the knee thing. And I personally never had an issue with the taking the knee gesture. I actually like it. I see it as a kind of, you know, peaceful form of protest. And I get that when referring to, you know, the NFL players who uh, engaged in or are still engaged in it. Yeah, they're getting paid a lot of money to play ball and they're on the clock and all that. Uh, but me personally, I'm like, who cares, man? Let them do their thing. You know, <laughs> what kind of jingoistic shit is that? That everyone, you know, gets all pissy if you don't stand for an anthem. 
And uh, it's funny, a lot of critics have tried to paint it as unpatriotic. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, the idea came from a friend of Colin Kaepernick's uh, who happened to have been in the military. At least I think that's the case. Uh, he was looking for a respectful way to protest during the anthem, and his friend told him about the, uh, the whole taking a knee gesture, which has a tradition in the military, I guess, uh, especially the army. Um, I think it's sometimes done at the foot of a grave of a fallen friend or fellow soldier, and also as a posture assumed when pausing or catching your breath before taking action. So supposedly you have all these people saying it's unpatriotic, and yet you have vets and military people who it, you know, resonates with and don't understand, uh, you know, all the outrage. I'm sure you could probably find some military people who are offended by it or see it as a kind of, you know, misappropriation, but uh, generally speaking, you know. And then I was catching up on Sam Harris's podcast, and I keep wanting to call it Waking Up. Um, that was the original title. I think then he renamed it, and this was a while ago, um, Making Sense with Sam Harris. And I think he did that because... Uh, uh, waking Up became the title of his uh, meditation app, I think, and he wanted to try to avoid any confusion. Um, whatever. Uh, still, you know, I love Sam Harris's podcast, and I was catching up on it. And uh, I was looking forward to hear his take on, you know, the unrest and wake of George Floyd's death, etc. Uh, and I thought the, the episode he did on that was pretty good. As usual, Sam's approach was characteristically thoughtful and measured. Uh, I kind of disagreed with him on a couple of points, uh, but still, you know, I liked the episode. And it's funny, I found myself, you know, after uh, having listened to or watched, you know, uh, Sam Harris's podcast and Brett Weinstein's uh, Dark Horse podcast back to back, because uh, they're both very vocal in their criticism of Donald Trump. I found myself wondering what people on the right currently think of people like Sam Harris and Brett Weinstein. On the one hand, they're both very, you know, as I was just saying, very open in their disdain for Trump. Which you, which you would think would be a turnoff for people on the right, at least, or especially the hardcore, you know, MAGA types. And yet they regularly take on PC culture, which you would think, you know, would have right-wing appeal. And so as I was kind of alluding to, you know, there were a couple of points where I found myself disagreeing with Sam in that most recent episode. Um, you know, and uh, as I was just saying, he offered his usual disclaimer where he expresses his, you know, uh, disdain for Trump. But then he goes on to chide people on the left for taking offense at the All Lives Matter response to, you know, uh, the BLM movement, uh, Black Lives Matter, as if, you know, they're so, the people on the left are so politically correct that they can't even agree with something as sensible as All Lives Matter. And I've heard a number of people try to make this, you know, point or, you know, make this complaint. 
And I think uh, it might have just been yesterday. I was watching Joe Rogan's show on YouTube. I don't know how much longer that's going to last because he signed that big Spotify uh, deal. But anyway, his um, his guest was Jocko Willink, I think his name is. And they were both kind of, you know, laughing and shaking their heads how people are so politically correct. They're taking offense at, you know, this benevolent sentiment that all lives matter. And in full disclosure, I believe I criticized Black Lives Matter once uh, on this show. I think specifically it was in the wake of that incident when a group of young people who identified themselves with the movement basically ambushed Bernie Sanders during a campaign or stump speech he was giving when he was running the first time around. And I was like, out of all the politicians to sabotage or steal the mic from, why Bernie? Uh, at, at least in my view, you know, he's one of the most honest politicians out there and his civil rights record stretches back to the 60s. Definitely a guy who you should want or who is on your side, you know. And I made the observation that Black Lives Matter was basically a decentralized hashtag movement. And being such, anyone could claim they were acting on behalf of the movement, for better or worse. Uh, but I always agreed with the heart of the movement. And it's true that all lives matter should be everyone's default position. And I imagine for most decent people it is. Uh, but there seems to be this kind of uncharitable interpretation on the right that by saying black lives matter, you're somehow implying black lives matter more. The interpretation I get is that black people are saying we've been treated or made to feel, you know, for centuries, like we're inferior, less than, even subhuman, and they're saying our lives matter. We're not disposable. We're not less than. Uh, I suppose you could go with Black Lives Matter too, but as a lyricist, I have to say that doesn't quite have the same ring. Uh, yeah, so when I feel like people try to uh, respond to the sentiment Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter, you know, it's, it's kind of um, insensitive and tone deaf. You know, you're kind of, people are crying out and you're missing the point. And Dave Chappelle made a powerful point. He was talking about how affected he was by the knowledge that George Floyd had cried out for his mother as he died, and how it reminded him of the way his own father had cried out on his deathbed for his grandmother. And Chappelle pointed out how, you know, the grandmother his father was crying out for had been a slave, and how we're not as far removed from all that as we'd like to think. And I remember years ago, Atheism is Unstoppable chided me for suggesting in passing that there were still lingering effects from things like slavery and segregation, Jim Crow, etc. And some people try to say you're being, you know, a virtue signaling pansy or a bleeding heart liberal or whatever uh, for suggesting that kind of thing. But I think it's fairly sound, uh, you know, a fairly sound line of thinking to conclude that things like racial and social attitudes, economic circumstances, etc., get handed down generationally and can have lingering effects. I think it is true that here in America, anyone can try to lift themselves up and make something of themselves, but it seems like for every success story, there's countless people who slip through the cracks or get mired in the shit circumstances they were born into. 
uh, anyway, then as I mentioned a bit ago, I, I just don't watch, you know, atheist content on YouTube. I also subscribe to a bunch of vegan channels. And uh, don't worry, I'm not proselytizing. <laughs> and uh, I myself have still yet to completely phase animal products out of my diet. But I do agree with, you know, and admire the vegan worldview. And I think the less harm and suffering we inflict on other living beings, the better, you know? And the reason why I brought up veganism yet again on the show is because I'm going to be talking about a, a, a specific vegan content creator and, you know, I'll kind of tie this into what I was talking about earlier. Uh, but to digress for a moment, it's funny, there's this one vegan uh, personal trainer, at least he used to be vegan, on YouTube named John Venus. And he recently came out and announced that he's no longer vegan. And holy crap, other prominent vegan YouTubers just swarmed on him like sharks in a feeding frenzy, you know? Vegan sharks. Uh... <laughs> Stupid joke. Uh, not that I minded. The guy always seemed kind of disingenuous, and his excuses for dropping veganism were pretty flimsy and, you know, convoluted. Uh, but that's why I don't call myself a vegan. I, I know the limits of my self-control. You know, come out calling myself a vegan and then get secretly photographed eating a chocolate cream pie or something. And uh, speaking about, you know, my attempt to phase animal products out of my diet and, you know, my kind of uh, lack of self-control, uh, one of the weirder things I did recently was to put regular whipped cream on dairy-free pudding made with almond milk. Don't ask, there's some serious cognitive dissonance there. Uh, I happen to have an old canister of whipped cream, and the consistency of the almond milk pudding kind of freaks me out sometimes, so I decided to bury it in, uh, you know, regu regular dairy-based whipped cream or whatever I had hanging around in the fridge. The struggle is real. Uh, anyway, so yeah, um, the other vegan content creator uh, I mentioned that, you know, I alluded to a moment ago... Um, you know, and I subscribe to her and I don't know if I'm going to continue to subscribe to her. It's not often that I unsubscribe to a channel, but wow, this is pretty crazy. Uh, but it's a woman who goes by the name Freely the Banana Girl. Uh, she has a pretty in your face approach, which doesn't bother me. I just took it as you know, passion for defending animals. And she's always bouncing up and down, but you never see what's going on below the waist. Don't know if there's a bad dragon down there or whatever. And uh, if, if you got that reference, uh, uh, anyway, uh, I'll do my best to get back on track here. Oh, yeah, so recently she released a video on Black Lives Matter, which I thought was weird because she usually only focuses on veganism. But I guess she was pissed because she felt like other vegans were trying to push her to support Black Lives Matter. Uh, but holy shit, in the video, she supports or promotes Candace Owens uh, and even brings up the New World Order. Uh, and I was like, okay, enough of this. Stop the train. I want to get off, you know? Uh, I'm like, damn, she should have stuck to veganism. Uh, at the time I watched it, the down votes, uh, pretty much, I think they exactly equaled the up votes. Uh, they were tied at uh, 1.7 thousand.
Okay, so we're about 27 minutes in, and I'm just finally getting to uh, one of the bigger stories I wanted to cover. Uh, and, and I say big, and I think it's big because of the implications, but uh, I mean, I don't know if this was widely covered uh, in the mainstream or by the mainstream media, uh, but I heard about this story from David Pakman, and it just blew my mind. Uh, Donald Trump uh, published a tweet, and is that is that a, a correct way to put it? published a tweet. Anyway, uh, published a tweet in which he repeats an absolutely absurd and insulting conspiracy theory he picked up from uh, OANN, and and that stands for One America News Network, a far-right network that puts out a lot of, you know, conspiratorial garbage. Um, The specific conspiracy theory repeated by Trump is that 75-year-old Catholic peace activist Martin Gugino, or Gugino, is he probably no relation to Carla Gugino? Remember that actress? Was she from, uh, I think she was in Sin City. Uh, anyway, um, that uh, 75 year old Catholic peace activist Martin Gugino is actually secretly working with Antifa, or Antifa, and he's, you know, and, and he was attempting to scan the police officers' communication devices, and that's why they had to push him to the ground. So, you know, just absolutely batshit crazy. I can't even wrap my mind around it. Uh, here's Trump's tweet verbatim. Buffalo protester shoved by police could be an Antifa provocateur. Or is it provocateur, anyway? 75-year-old Martin Gugino was pushed away after appearing to scan police communications in order to black out the equipment. At OANN, I watched. He fell harder than was pushed. Was aiming scanner. Could be a setup. Fell harder than was pushed. Despite how outlandish the theory is as a whole, for some reason that part struck me as particularly absurd. Um, like the cops shove him and he suddenly, you know, pauses and decides, like in midair, like a wily e. coyote, okay, now I'm going to throw myself down really hard. And I know a lot of people on the right tend to be religious. I wonder what they think of this. Sadly, I think many of them will reflexively side with Trump. Uh, Here you have a devout Catholic peace activist, someone actually walking the walk, and he's assaulted by the authorities, and Trump is tweeting conspiracy theories about him. And so this particular conspiracy theory kind of smacks of someone really reaching in an attempt to try to defend the indefensible. A cop shoved an elderly, peaceful protester to the ground, causing him to sustain a head injury, you know, where he's lying motionless on the sidewalk with a pool of blood stretching out from his head. Uh, How do you defend that? Well, a normal person with scruples would probably say you can't. But hey, you know, what if he was... uh, a secret Antifa agent uh, carrying some kind of James Bond spy gadget attempting to cut off the cops' communications, you know? There seems to be a systemic problem with young and sadly middle-aged, you know, see Derek Chauvin, hotheads and law enforcement who are way too quick to resort to physicality. And so, you know, moving on, uh, there were a couple of stories having to do with Islam that I wanted to cover. Well, actually, I was kind of torn over whether to cover them or not, because they're uh, they're pretty heavy, pretty dark and depressing. But they affected me enough that I saved the links to my notes. 
I think it's really been a while since I mentioned anything having to do with Islam on the show. Uh, remember back in the day when it seemed like Islamic extremism and terror attacks were always in the news and, and every uh, atheist content creator and their mother were talking about Islam? The good old days. Well, not really, but anyway. So I might as well dust off my old disclaimer. I'm not attacking all the good, peaceable Muslims out there. I'm covering these stories in an attempt to demonstrate yet again the danger of religious extremism, and in these particular cases, the horror wrought by religious extremism mixed with barbaric and outdated attitudes towards women. Uh, well, you know, these... Uh, these practices should have always been considered barbaric, no matter what you know time period they were taking you know taking place in. But you get my point. Uh, and of course, we could get into a whole discussion on the subject of to what extent are these attitudes informed by religion? Uh, in this case, you know, Islam. And I have to admit, my knowledge of Islam has gotten pretty rusty since the last time I covered this kind of story on the show. And so uh, I can't remember if it's in the Quran or the Hadith, but supposedly uh, there is a verse or verses that go into when and to what extent, you know, you're allowed to beat your wife. And don't get you know, get on me for criticizing Islam. I criticize Christianity and religion in general all the time. You know, this is an equal opportunity podcast. Anyway, you know, let's get started. And actually, let me pause for a moment, because I think this is the verse I was uh, alluding to. And Nisa 34, as for those women on whose part you fear ill will and nasty conduct, admonish them first. Next, leave them alone in beds. And last, beat or separate them from you. But if they obey you, then seek nothing against them. Behold, God is most high and great. And I've heard, you know, like Muslim apologists approach this, uh, this verse as... Um, being misconstrued by, you know, critics of Islam and that it's really talking about, you know, punishing uh, your wife or whatever with like uh, uh, just maybe a, a light kind of switch, uh, almost like a symbolic, you know, tap or something like that. I, I, I don't know. Uh, that's the problem with religion. You know, people can interpret it and spin it whatever way they want. You know what I mean? And that I know because I am going to get into, you know, FGM, uh, female genital mutilation and honor killings in a moment. And I know some people try to argue that these are more cultural practices than things that, you know, uh, are gotten from, uh, from Islam directly. But either way, you know, at the end of the day, we tend to see these practices in, you know, certain Islamic cultures. Um, but anyway, let's finally move on to these stories. And so this first story was widely covered in the media, and I was going to read from a CNN article on my iPad here, but oh, the um, CNN's ads, I could figure out how to turn them off, and they were literally taking up at least a third of the uh, page, and, and so I just, I couldn't read the article properly, so go away, CNN. Now I'm reading from the New York Times article on it. And this is really dark. And and so, uh, and this article is dated, well, I, I remember this broke a couple of weeks ago, but this looks like it was updated in June, uh, last updated June 9th. 
Okay, so get ready. A daughter is beheaded, and Iran asks if women have a right to safety. The so-called honor killing of a 14-year-old girl in Iran has shaken the country and forced an examination of its failure to protect women and children. Before he beheaded his 14-year-old daughter with a farming sickle, Reza Ashrafi, I think it is, called a lawyer. His daughter, Romina, was going to dishonor the family by running off with her 20-year-old boyfriend. Okay, so that's uh, quite the age difference. She was 14, he's 29. But uh, it should go without saying, I mean, really, that it doesn't merit being decapitated by your father. Uh, this is so vile and uh, nightmarish and, and grotesque. Um, and, uh, I've seen a picture of the girl around, uh, you know, embedded in these stories and it looks like such a happy, kind, you know, decent, you know, young lady just looking at her, uh, just looks really kind and full of life. And to think that she was subjected to that, uh, it's so awful and I'm not saying that the 29-year-old guy should have been beheaded instead. No one should have been beheaded. But I think, you know, obviously, at least from our point of view, where we realize someone who's 14 is still a child, the human brain, they say, doesn't even finish developing till what? Like your mid-20s, around 24, 25. If you're going to hold anyone accountable, it should be this 29-year-old man. Uh it's so grotesque. So I think there there are these kind of backwards cultural attitudes where you have a situation like this. And I don't know what kind of punishment was doled out to this 29-year-old man who tried to run away with a 14-year-old girl, if, you know, at least that's what the story seems to be implying. But it seems like with these stories we see this really disturbing and sickening pattern where it's the female, the woman, or in this case, the girl, a 14-year-old child, who is subjected to the lion's share of the, you know, um, the punishment or barbarism. And uh, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around. Uh, and I know there's this thing called cultural relativity. I remember taking an, uh, an anthropology course one time, and that was something we heard about, how researchers, anthropologists, have to try to maintain this idea of cultural relativity. Just because something might seem shocking or, uh, or off-putting to you know, the person doing the studying of this foreign culture, uh, you have to remember that, you know, it, it's relative. But to me, this is one of those things that um, cultural relativity be damned. You know, I mean, there's some things that should universally fill people with disgust and anger and revulsion in the murdering of a, of a child by their parent. You know, it should be one of those things. Yeah, so where was I? Yeah, before he beheaded his 14-year-old daughter with a farming sickle, Reza Ashrafi called a lawyer. His daughter, Romina, was going to dishonor the family by running off with a 29-year-old boyfriend, he said. What kind of punishment, he asked the lawyer, would he get for killing her? 
The lawyer assured him that as the girl's guardian, he would not face capital punishment, but at the most, three to ten years in jail, Mr. Ashrafi's relatives told an Iranian newspaper. Three weeks later, Mr. Ashrafi, a 37-year-old farmer, marched into the bedroom where the girl was sleeping and decapitated her. The so-called honor killing last month in a small village in the rolling green hills of northern Iran has shaken the country and set off a nationwide debate over the rights of women and children and the failure of the country's social, religious, and legal systems to protect them. It has also prompted a Me Too moment. I was wondering if that's supposed to be movement, but I guess it could be moment, on social media of women pouring out their own stories of abuse at the hands of male relatives in hopes of shedding light on a problem that is usually kept quiet. And it gives a couple of examples. Mainu, a 49-year-old mother of two in Tehran, said her husband had beaten their 17-year-old daughter when he spotted her with a male friend in the street. Hania Rajabi, Rajabi, my apologies if I butchered that, a PhD student in philosophy, tweeted that her father had lashed her with a belt and kept her out of school for a week because she had walked home from class to buy ice cream instead of taking the school bus. And like I warned, just really dark, disturbing, depressing stuff, the one silver lining, I think, is that... um. If this story is to be believed, there's at least this, you know, this large outcry and people en masse kind of denouncing this, you know what I mean? And I know sometimes I make fun of Twitter and talk about how I don't spend much time on there. But I think, as I've said in the past, I think in fairness to myself, you know, on the show that uh, I think there are times when social media can be very important and it can kind of function as a vehicle for people to share their own stories and shine a light on this kind of thing so hopefully you know eventually um there'll be some kind of change enacted you know so here's another absolute horror story and this is from the bbc and uh it's dated june 5th uh, FGM, of course, female genital mutilation, Egyptian father used coronavirus lie to trick daughters into procedure. A man in Egypt who allegedly had female genital mutilation carried out on his three daughters after tricking them has been charged along with the doctor who performed the procedure. The doctor went to the girl's house after their father told them they would receive a coronavirus vaccination. Egypt's prosecutor general said the girls aged under 18 were drugged and the doctor cut their genitals. FGM was made illegal in 2008 in Egypt but remains prevalent. The girls told their mother who divorced their father about the procedure and she notified authorities. They lost consciousness and when they woke up they were shocked to find their legs bound together and a sensation of pain in their genitals, the prosecutor said in a statement. Performing FGM was made a criminal act in Egypt in 2016 and doctors can be jailed for up to seven years if found guilty of carrying out the procedure. Anyone who requests it can face up to three years in prison. But so far, no one has been successfully prosecuted under the law. Women's rights groups and judges and police do not take the legislation seriously enough. 
It's really shocking that authorities such as judges and the police continue to treat FGM cases with extreme leniency here. Rada El Dambuki, executive director of the Cairo-based Women's Center for Guidance and Legal Awareness, told AFP News Agency. And then it says in January, 14-year-old Nada Abdul Maksud bled to death after forcibly undergoing FGM, sparking fury online. It has some bullet points, and there's one uh, that's pretty disturbing here. FGM increasingly performed on UK babies. But yeah, I mean, horrible stuff. And I don't even know what to say, you know. Um, I don't know if we can ever make the type of person who would actually behead their own child or trick their child into having their genitals mutilated, whether we can ever get through to people like that. I mean, maybe we just have to keep fighting the good fight and, you know, in the public forum, just and this is where, once again, social media is really important. Just have to keep putting the pressure on, keep shining a light on this stuff, and hope that eventually there will be some kind of change. Uh, wow. But anyway, we're beyond the 40-minute mark, and I am very tired, so I think I'll just kind of sign off here. Uh, as always, thanks everyone for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash the weekend out and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.